Investment in IT is definitely a rising focus among Japanese companies. Stock exchanges are trying to encourage the company to do more ESG disclosure. To encourage people to get back to the, the labor market, wages are going up, and I don't see this as something that will be temporary. Hello. Volatile markets, unpredictable governments, rising costs. How does one begin to run a company in such uncertain times? How are managers feeling about the coming year and what are their plans? To answer this, we've asked over 150 of our global research team for their views as part of Fidelity International's annual analyst survey. The findings offer a comprehensive and unique bottom-up insight and highlight the real trends analysts are seeing in the sectors and companies they cover every day across the globe. I'll be speaking to some of our experts about the results and what this means for investors. I'm Carsten Röhmheld, filling in for Richard Edgar, and this is Rich Pickings, Fidelity's Asset Allocation Podcast. With me today to dig through the key findings are Gita Bal, Global Head of Research for Fixed Income, Fiona O'Neill, Director of Global Equity Research, and Portfolio Manager Caroline Shaw. Welcome to you all. Hi, Hi Carsten. One of the key themes that's emerged from this year's survey is a focus from companies to invest in new technology to help them to build resilience for the challenges ahead. If you could invent a piece of technology to help tackle a day-to-day -day challenge, what would it be? Gita, maybe you can start. So I've been thinking that I would really love for, for the time turners in Harry Potter to be, to be an actual technology because I feel like almost every day I could use an extra hour or two just to like catch up on everything that needs to be done. So that, that would be my wish. In the absence of that, I'd love anything that could, um, a, a transporter from Star Trek that would allow me to kind of get rid of my daily commute into the office. Fantastic things to think about. Yeah, wouldn't we all wish for them? Fiona, what do you have in mind? So I think Gita's first idea is a fantastic one. But the other thing that I'd really like is, you know, with this um, hybrid working uh, that we now have, um, you know, my step count is through the floor, you know, rolling from a bedroom to an office. So I need something that gets my step count up when I'm sat at my computer working. So something that works my bum, my tum, my legs at the same time as I'm uh, analyzing uh, stocks and, and making equity decisions. A cycling bike would probably do the job just below your desk. So, Caroline, Perfect. what do you have? <laughs> Caroline, what do you have in mind? I would like a bit of tech to answer the daily "What's for dinner?" question. Uh, not least my own "What's for dinner?" question, but that of my entire family. Not only answers the question, but makes sure that the fridge is stocked with all the ingredients and that the simple instructions for whoever's preparing it. That sounds really fantastic. Uh, I think uh, these are all good business models to look forward to. So before we get into our survey results, it's been another very volatile month. Inflation continues to climb. We've had hawkish signals from the ECB and tensions remain high on the Ukrainian border. Earlier, I asked Fidelity International's Global Chief Investment Officer, Andrew McCaffrey, how these factors and others have impacted Fidelity's global asset allocation view. So I think some of the key things that um, uh, you know, we continue to, uh, to, to see from uh, uh, here is that you know, how do you find that balance between the, uh, you know, is inflation uh, going to stay persistent but at the moment showing signs of peaking? 
what are we seeing in terms of the growth dynamic? Because clearly we've come off the highs, but um, uh, you know, still at reasonable growth rates. But Q1 has shown some real challenges at, uh, at this at this stage. And how's that feedback through um, various markets? I think that you know, for us, one of the things that's most probably been sensible is be uh, somewhat more neutral when we're looking at some of the risk asset plays. So whether it be equities or looking into the credit markets, but actually slightly getting a bit more defensive there thinking that credit, and especially looking to high yield, that uh, as you've seen yields rise, and actually, you know, um, when you look at the uh, the rates market at the treasury market, you know, it's underperformed, um, even this, uh, as we've seen yields go up. So I think the risk is that you start to see some of that um, get priced into high yields, especially if we start talking about any form of slowing of growth. So we're a bit more defensive for credit as we um, you know head through the, the quarter. And so that's a little... Um, uh, you know, for change as well. But in terms of the expectations across uh, the equity markets, still tend to favour that we will have a degree of, you know, the US giving back more of that massive outperformance. And then it really comes into, you know, do we have that stimulus in China starts to feed through more and that impacting across Asia, which we think it will, and therefore, you know, still have a bias and looking to continue to be slightly more favourable towards China, Asia, both equities but also um, debt from this point going forward. So not dramatic change, but um, a little bit more, um, uh, you know, again, constructive in that geographic view. Overall risk still most probably being biased to be neutral, even slightly underweight um, overall. And then um, finally, I think that one of the parts to work out is, is the stimulus or not coming from how the dollar moves from here. And if we are in that point where the expectations of policy are shown to be um, actually near their highs, as we see other central banks, especially in the developed world, starting to talk more about tightening, then you could find actually that the dollar coming off gives a little bit of a tailwind to that uh, emerging market um, and Asia view that I've just raised as well. Andrew McCaffrey speaking there. You can hear his interview in full on the Rich Pickings podcast channel. Caroline, how do Andrew's remarks reflect in your own allocations? Well, we've seen a couple of large spikes in the equity market volatility this quarter, um, certainly at the back end of January and more recently. And these are indications that there is increased uncertainty out there. And the challenges that Andrew summarised, uh, inflation, the increased hawkishness of central banks, uh, the potential for a policy misstep on behalf of a central bank is pretty high at the moment. Um, and then, of course, we've got the geopolitics overlaying everything with the tensions between Russia and the Ukraine and the knock-on effect of maybe increased energy prices across not only Western Europe and the UK, which has already got problems ahead, but maybe across the wider world. So huge amounts of challenges there. And absolutely what we've done is to just take a little bit of risk off the table recently. So one thing that we've done in the portfolios is just reduce some US equity exposure. Mindful of exactly what Andrew said, um, the, the US markets are going to give back a little bit of the super returns that they saw through 2021. Um, but also in conjunction with that, we still remain positive on emerging markets, uh, particularly China, where we see that supportive policy is going to enable the markets there to just differentiate themselves a little bit from the from the US and the European markets. Um, so supportive policy, we've seen uh, rate reductions in China as well. Um, and this policy easing to support domestic growth should be positive for China equities. So that's the little switch we've made um, in recent weeks. 
with this more cautionary view on risk assets overall. So what are you looking for in this volatility in terms of timings or re-entry points into markets? What are, what are the signals you're looking for longer term? If I could time it perfectly, I'd be a very happy portfolio manager. It's never that easy, uh, but we're just looking out for the for the market opportunities. We've kept a little bit of liquidity back. We've got some cash to take advantage of those opportunities. Uh, so we're looking for, the wrong word is guidance from the central banks because they're guiding very clearly at the moment, but the markets are pricing in uh, the rate hikes over the year. We think it might be a little bit more conservative from that. So we're looking at the data, particularly over the next six to eight weeks, which should bring a lot more clarity to what the policy action is going to be across the major global central banks. And that will at least start the process of us understanding a little bit more where the path forward lies and how we can find those opportunities and the, and the right timing to go back in. So let's dig into the survey. Now we're going to look at a handful of themes that we think have emerged as particularly interesting. We'll begin by looking at the headline, the sentiment indicator, which gauges the overall mood of companies for the year ahead. Fiona, what does it tell us? So I think it's important when we talk about the sentiment just to set it in context. And, and that is that the survey that we conducted with the analysts um, was completed in December of 2021. So when we compare it to 12 months earlier, I don't think it should be any surprise to us that more than half of our analysts are saying that the corporate sentiment is much stronger than it was 12 months ago at the end of 2020. That makes complete sense. At the end of 2020, we had no vaccine, we had new variants emerging, and therefore there was much uncertainty about how we were going to escape the clutches of the pandemic. So what that means, I think, is that you have management teams uh, in 2022 who are more able uh, and more optimistic about their chances to focus on running their business rather than simply being in survival mode. Um, so they can think about starting to invest again. They can consider things like M&A. But all of that said, I would like to just sound one little cautionary note and that is that some of this optimism is indeed tempered by some of the challenges, Caroline's already mentioned them, inflation, the push for net zero, geopolitical risks on the rise. And so whilst our sentiment is significantly stronger in terms of our annual survey, what we've seen in our monthly surveys from the analysts is that we're perhaps past the point of peaked optimism and that optimism has started to trend down in the last few months. So it's a more nuanced picture more recently. Uh, Gita, how much does the picture vary across sectors, for example? Yeah, I think I think before we talk about sectors, maybe the, the best thing to talk about as a starting point on management sentiment is, is talking about the regional picture, because especially during the entirety of the pandemic, um, where you were located often was a better determinant of, of how you were feeling as a management team. And, and with that in mind, throughout the entire pandemic, up until perhaps this point, um, China has really led the way in terms of being ahead of the rest of the regions in terms of sentiment. It was quicker to feel negatively because obviously the, the pandemic started there, um, but it was also quicker to emerge as, as um, things improved. What we're now seeing is, is China is definitely in negative territory in terms of sentiment. And that's in contrast to a lot of the rest of the world, which is currently um, much more neutral in its expectations for the rest of the year. 
What I would say on, on China is that the experience of Omicron may be clouding that result. And we just need to wait and see if this is once again going to be the precursor of how everyone else feels, or if perhaps this is um, evidence of something more unique that's happening in China at this particular moment in time. On a sector-by-sector -sector basis, we continue to see a very mixed picture. Um, management sentiment is incredibly strong in the energy sector, driven by oil prices and, and strong uh, recovery in oil demand. Management sentiment is significantly more negative in places like materials, likely due to, to rising costs, as well as in telecoms, where I suspect that the, the rates environment is starting to, to um to hit the, the confidence of management teams that may be more reliant on, on fixed income markets to reissue um, debt every year. Uh, Caroline, if I could come to you, how is this picture now being perceived by investors at the moment? Yeah, I think there's a difference between how a company um, sees its opportunities going forwards and how it's priced currently for an investor to, to take exposure to it. Uh, so we're seeing opportunities and they may not be necessarily aligned with uh, how a business would perceive its, its future opportunities. So where we're seeing opportunities now are things like in the financial sector, where the macro environment is pretty favourable. Uh, we're seeing loan growth is positive. Uh, the hawkish Fed, of course, is helpful broadly um, and interest rates are, are good for banks and the financial sector typically does well in a period of rising rates and rising real yields. Uh, now, The way we're investing in the, on the equity side, uh, the US financials and banks dominate the sector and they're broadly well capitalized um, and we expect buybacks to support valuations. So whilst we expect a little bit of deposit growth uh, to slow in 2022, we are expecting some consumer loan growth to increase um, because it's likely that savings are going to be used up and uh, Spending on housing and consumption will continue. There may be some signs already that that is it may well be a little muted. But we do think that um, the financial sector should benefit from the macro environment. So that's somewhere where we've rotated a little into uh, at the same time as maybe just we've taken a little bit of the edge off our exposure to technology. It's got increased regulatory pressure in that in that sector as a whole. And there's some headwinds uh, in certainly in, say, the semiconductor space still um, as demand might slow there, broadly hardware demand. So uh, the tech sector has been looking quite expensive. And so that's the difference between uh, the analyst sentiment on, on a sector broadly and the opportunities that valuations are allowing us to, to take advantage of at the moment. So a little bit of a differentiated view here, but let's come back to the companies. Gita, one of the very positive things that we observe right now is quite strong balance sheets still. So can you elaborate on that a little bit and how that's uh, looking going forward? Yes, we've asked for many years, our analysts, how stretched um, corporate balance sheets are looking. And across the, the sectors, we're really finding that analysts are telling us now that balance sheets are not stretched. And, and that's a nice change to see from kind of where we were at the peak of the pandemic in some of the consumer discretionary spaces or where we were in various energy crises in the energy space. So, so really a positive sentiment around balance sheet strength right now. The other thing that's coming out that's quite positive, um, I think, is that we have a very big consensus that debt is generally coming down for corporates. Um, there are a few notable exceptions to this trend, um, and that is regionally in China, where debt is seen to be increasing, but also sectorally, where debt is increasing still in the utilities um, and telecom space. But overall, we're seeing debt levels also coming down 
even though balance sheets are already in quite good shape. So a strong balance sheet might, might also be good for global pension plans as well. So Fiona, talking about that, what are companies doing with their cash? So look, um, I just want to pick up on, on some of those uh, sector examples that Gita gave you and talk about, um, first of all, the energy companies that have seen rapidly deleveraging as they have prioritized their cash flow over growth. And so what we're going to see them do over the course of this year and future years is to really focus some of that cash to help them with their shift to cleaner energy. There are other companies, I think, uh, that are likely to explore M&A, and I am sure that we'll talk about that more later on. And then there are the companies that are focused on building resilience post the pandemic, having um, experienced disrupted supply chains, rising costs, uh, and companies are really strengthening their defences against, I think, future shocks. Be that by strengthening uh, balance sheets, shortening supply chains, or in fact, as two thirds of our analysts highlight, by investing in new technology. A good problem to have plenty of cash these days. So on that topic, let's hear from our first analyst, Tokyo-based Cenk Simsek. Cenk covers technology and factory automation. Here's what he had to say. Investment in IT is definitely a rising focus among Japanese companies, and I can cl clearly see this among the companies that I cover. Perhaps one key reason that Japan really stands out as this is becoming a rising focus is because it has been well behind the major developed markets when it comes to investment in IT. In the short run, I think um, in the manufacturing industry overall, the focus remains the cost pressure and the shortages. So I, I think in, in the very near term, the focus will be more on increasing productivity and output. And in some cases, this does mean um, increased automation spend, because if it's labor shortage driven, you are better off by automating your lines um, so that you don't need to deal with labor shortages or any potential impact for further lockdowns that might happen due to COVID. Analyst and portfolio manager Cenk Simsek giving his insight. Fiona, how big is this drive for companies to become more efficient? It's huge. Uh, and I think it's about being efficient in a smart way. So, for example, shortening your supply chain, not necessarily consolidating. What do I mean by that? Companies don't want to put all of their eggs into one basket. That is something that they really have learned through the course of the pandemic. It's also about using automation to manufacture in an agile way. So cost of labor is going up. We've seen significant labor shortages uh, and both of those things can really hurt if you are dependent on a manual labor force. And is this all a result of the pandemic? I think some of the automation was already underway before the pandemic. But I think what we've seen is the pandemic has massively accelerated some of the trends that were emerging pre-pandemic and automation is one of those. Caroline, what do you see as the opportunities and risks here? I think, firstly, the huge positive is um, what Gita alluded to earlier, which is the strong balance sheets, which give the companies this opportunity to invest. Um, and in terms of opportunities, well, if companies are investing in, in technology, uh, for example, that creates further opportunities. If companies are investing in shortening their supply chain, improving their supply chain, then we have opportunities to invest in that too. 
But I would be mindful of the risks here uh, because, of course, companies have to make difficult choices. And whilst they want to do everything uh, in the ideal world, they would like to invest in tech at the same time as shortening supply chains, at the same time as doing uh, improving um, employee well-being, for example. There are choices to make, and uh, this is in conjunction with the difficult decisions they're going to have to make uh, in order to, as Fiona said, go on the path to net zero. So I think there are, there are risks to some of these investment opportunities lying ahead, and we're, we're mindful of those too. Let's look at the next headline from the survey, inflation. As we touched on earlier, it's expected to be a key issue this year, with companies facing a mix of transitory and structural pressures. Here's consumer analyst in our fixed income team, Rebecca Clements. As a consumer analyst, I'm seeing more of the inflationary pressures as being structural as opposed to transitory. For my sector in retail, I'm seeing inflation particularly on the wage front for labor. So this is hourly wages, both for in-store and also for the supply chain, including distribution centers. As we come out of the pandemic, we're seeing a reluctance in some part for people to return to the labor force for a variety of reasons. And so in order to encourage people to get back to the, the labor market, wages are going up. And I don't see this as something that will be temporary. I view this as something that is structural and will, will be sticky as we go forward. Rebecca Clements, consumer analyst speaking there. Gita, Rebecca speaks about the impact she's seeing on wages and the labor market. What else did the analysts have to say about inflation in the next 12 months? So look, I, I think we can't underscore enough um, how much our analysts are talking about labor inflation and how it is looking more and more structural. I mean, I think we've all heard about the great attrition and the the, the difficulties in attracting talent in a, in a post-pandemic kind of a world. And so the analysts are really saying that has become a much more structural part of their expectations over the next few years. In addition, we're increasingly hearing from analysts that that greenflation is a theme that is going to be more um, structural in nature. Um, and that is because obviously everybody is recognizing the need to make the energy transition that we have to make. And as a consequence, um, you know, they, they will need to invest and that is going to cost money and that is going to drive some inflation over the next few years. For all other types of inflation, whether we're talking about things like supply chain pressures, whether we're talking about things like chip shortages, these have been themes that we've been asking the analysts about all throughout 2021. And I think that the, the sentiment has gone from a view that these were very transitory in nature to now a much more uncertain outlook for how transitory these types of inflation will actually be. And, and that's because they have actually persisted for a number of months already. And it is hard to see when inflation uh, prints continue to be higher, that they are going to come down in the very near future and how quickly they were going to come down. So I think inflation is a key area of focus for, for all of our analysts. I think there are elements that we know are going to be more structural. And I think there are elements that I think the jury's still out. As central banks respond to rising inflation, how big a problem do you think this poses to companies in terms of funding costs? Look, I think our analysts are generally saying that they expect funding costs to increase over time. Um, that is one of the key changes in this year's survey relative to, to a number of recent year's surveys. With that said, given the strength of the balance sheets that, that companies have right now, the refinancing needs are actually relatively low. And as a consequence, um, I don't know if the transmission mechanism between higher rates and higher funding costs will actually be that quick. 
I think the second thing that I would say about that is that um, we are talking about historically low base rates already. So even with a, a nominal increase in, in base rates, your, your all-in cost of funding is still at a, a historic low level. This sounds very constructive. Fiona, let's get to you. Does this environment lend itself to a rise in M&A? Yeah, I think it absolutely does, Carsten. Um, I'd still expect that M&A will be heavily marked by private companies, but um, I'd also expect the corporate bid to be a lot stronger. Um, it's only February, and we have already seen Microsoft's all-cash bid for Activision. We've had Unilever uh, and their failed bid for the GSK Consumer Health business. Um, and, you know, there's 10 months still ahead of us. The challenge, I think, is that although we have these strong balance sheets, as Gita has referenced, funding costs are going to go up. But perhaps more importantly, there's the increased regulatory scrutiny uh, for deals. And, and I think that's going to make, you know, some deals that, you know, as investors, we might think make sense. I just wonder if they can really get over the line. And let me take, for example, uh, the failed Uh, attempt by Lockheed Martin to buy Aerojet that was stopped by the FTC. So I guess what that means is I would expect uh, M&A to lie much more intra-country, uh, building national champions, and also to be uh, more along the lines of bolt-on acquisitions rather than transformational strategic deals. Uh, Caroline, what are the portfolio implications of the inflationary backdrop that we've just described? Yeah, it's an interesting backdrop and Gita phrased it beautifully with this uh, transitory versus structural um, issue. You know, if we if we'd had this conversation a couple of months ago, everyone was talking about transitory inflation and now it's much more uh, focused on structural. And I think that uh, the central banks are they're moving this year. There's no no. Uh, debate over the fact that they're trying to combat inflation, but we've seen higher inflation prints than expected, uh, certainly in Europe and in the UK recently. Uh, so that is causing some uh, some issues uh, around the decision making and the guidance going forwards. So it just means we've got a lot more uncertainty about what's going to happen on inflation this year. And that, of course, is playing out in the market volatility. So certainly in Europe, for example, we've got these differing wage dynamics uh, between certainly between Europe and the UK. And um, um, you know, we've got to question whether investors and corporates have just got conditioned to this low interest rate environment where zero is the floor for interest rates. It's quite an interesting dynamic that we're facing now. Uh, and we've got pressure on periphery spreads across Europe as well. So this dynamic is playing out in an interesting way for us. Um, I think if we focus on the US again, um, the consumer uh, in the US has been the backbone of the US economy. And the consumer's got these pressures that it's facing. You know, it had stimulus checks last year. It had the opportunity to uh, carry on spending uh, and carry on saving. And is the consumer going to be able to prop up the economy in an environment where companies are expecting to be able to pass through this inflation? And so this is the dynamic we're, uh, that we're facing in the US. And it's for this reason that we're slightly more conservative on the US Whereas in areas of the world, such as Latin America, for example, policy easing has been a little bit more supportive. And we think, for example, that Latin America is, is likely to do better um, in that environment going forwards. So I think it, it brings its opportunities, but we're a little early to decide exactly how this is going to play out. So there are differences, of course, uh, given the variation in inflation dynamics that we're seeing on a local basis. 
On now to ESG, Environmental, Social and Governance Issues. Some positive news in the survey here, Gita. Yeah, very positive news. Um, I, we've been asking ESG questions in the survey for many years. And, and one of the highlights for me when I look this year is we always ask our analysts, how, what percentage of your companies or what percentage of the, the names you cover are focused on, on ESG? We're now to the point where um, only 3% of our analysts are saying that their companies do not have a growing focus on ESG. So growing focus is now a universal trait in, in financial markets. And, and I want to just put this into context. When we asked the same question in, in 2017, 58% of companies were not focused on ESG in any particular uh, manner. So, so this is an extraordinary change that we've seen in just five years. But with rising awareness of ESG issues and of those ESG challenges, we also have um, some more realistic expectations about what is achievable in the near term. And so we've been asking our analysts about their expectations of achieving net zero. And we have seen a slight decline in the number of companies that are expected to achieve net zero by 2030. Uh, that's coming down from 24% to 22%. And why do I think that, that that's happening? I think it's because companies are realizing what it's actually going to take investment-wise to achieve their net zero ambitions. It's also because it may be that with 2030 rapidly approaching, that companies actually have higher emissions in the short term in order to invest in the technologies that are required for the longer term uh, net zero pathway. And to that end, I think we have a really positive story to, to tell. We've also asked about net zero in 2040 and in 2050. And by 2040, our analysts are telling us that 39% of companies will have achieved net zero. And by 2050, we expect that number to reach 65%, which is, is truly heartwarming stuff. And, and hopefully it will continue to increase. Are we seeing a big variation by sector and country in this respect? Um, obviously, for, for a number of years, Europe has really led the way in terms of um, growing focus on ESG. We see it from, from all of our clients, from all of our news stories. It's, it's very clearly well entrenched in Europe. But we've seen really positive growth really globally in terms of the focus on ESG. And I think one of the notable highlights of the past year is just how much China has increased its focus on ESG. We've seen a pretty dramatic increase from, you know, around 25% of companies showing a growing focus on ESG in 2021 to 50% of companies today. So that's a dramatic change on just a one-year basis. You mentioned China and its growing ESG emphasis. Let's listen to one of our Hong Kong-based analysts now. Here's Alice Lee explaining that shift. I see rising awareness uh, of ESG in my utility sector in China. I think there are three drivers. The first one is that China announced its uh, commitment to reach carbon neutrality by 2060. The second one is about more attention from the regulators. Now the stock exchanges are trying to encourage the company to do more ESG disclosure. And the third one is about the investors' reaction. They are now also focused more on ESG, so companies will like to uh, get a reasonable valuation in the capital market. They also see rising importance of ESG ratings. Utilities analyst Alice Lee sharing her insight. 
Caroline, do Alice's comments encourage you from an investment perspective? Uh, it's very important we implement ESG uh, criteria right from the very first stage of analysis through to investment portfolio decision making. Uh, it's what investors are expecting more globally now, uh, but it's certainly part of us as investors helping to push forward uh, companies to drive to achieve those uh, very uh, challenging goals of net zero by 2050. And in fact, if we refer back to Alice's comments on the development of ESG in China, there's some real positive trends there. Uh, and China has to really take the lead on this. And I know that at COP26, the US and China had a, uh, an agreement to cooperate on ESG uh, progress. And of course, there's positives with the US uh, having rejoined the Paris Agreement, uh, I think the tone from the top has to be very strong and the US is now at least re-establishing that tone uh, and China is falling in line as well with its, its ambitious targets for 2060 and interim targets for 2025 and 2030. And I think this is a, a real positive for the investment community in that Chinese companies are uh, reporting much more uh, coherently. Uh, the data metrics are stronger. There's an increased number of sustainability reports issued by Chinese companies. And for investors, that gives us uh, more comfort that work is being done. It gives us more information to be able to engage with those companies going forwards and make sure that we're investing in companies that are able to, to transition in a, in a clear, coherent way uh, in line with global goals. What about the S and the G, the social and governance side of things, Fiona? Companies focus on their employees' well-being spiked during the pandemic. Where are we now and what do you expect to happen next? So you're right. On the social side of things, we, we did reach a peak of sort in concern from, from companies about social issues very much in the early days of the pandemic. And while the rate of change is clearly not as high as it was before, the commitment seems to be undiminished. So there's a focus on data privacy, as you mentioned, uh, employee well-being, diversity and inclusion, supply chain dynamics, and they are very much part of the conversation. They're part of the company vernacular. And, you know, we think that that is unlikely to change now. It's become embedded. On the governance side, uh, I think this has long been the bread and butter of our research analysts in equities and fixed income at Fidelity. But what the focus on ESG has done, it's allowed us to have a consistency of approach to really capitalize on something that we were already doing. Later this year, Fidelity will publish its ESG-focused analyst survey, by the way, when we'll hear more about how companies are grappling with the whole spectrum of sustainability issues. It's nearly time to bring this month's podcast to a close, but not before we play hot cakes and hot potatoes. What would you buy like a hot cake? What would you drop like a hot potato? Gita, you first. What's your hot potato? My hot potato is probably Latin America at the minute. Um, the Bavespa in dollar terms is up 17% year to date versus an S&P that's down 6.5%. And I think if we think about how strong a election year it is um, across Latin America, I, I, I'm definitely cautious about um, what the implications would be for securities in, in, that, in those markets. And your hot cake? 
my hot cake right now is is leverage loans and and the the CLOs that that are made up of leverage loans. And the the simple reason is these are are floating rate instruments, very tied to to base rates, offering a very attractive spread. And and I think they are a very interesting investment right now. Great, Fiona. What about you? Your hot cake. My hot cake is uh, is transition materials, so um, something like lithium uh, or nickel, which you know are huge in terms of allowing the EV or electri- electrification uh, story to progress. Uh, they have got fairly tight supply. If you take just before Christmas, Rio's acquisition of a lithium project over in Argentina, it shows that you know lithium is a strategically important. Uh, commodity for the big players and is becoming more so. Lithium is very much an industry which needs those big players like Rio to allocate capital and to really execute. Very interesting. And what would you drop like a hot potato? So on the equity side, I'd be a bit more nuanced in terms of consumer discretionary uh, companies. Uh, I suspect that as inflation starts to bite, the consumer is still going to have appetite very much for experiences, uh, for holidays, for example, in a way that perhaps they haven't been able to enjoy those things over the last couple of years. Would you rather have a holiday or an extra jumper in your wardrobe? So I think as the consumer purse gets squeezed, the consumer is like to think much more carefully about where they allocate that discretionary spend. Sounds very convincing to me. Caroline, what is your selection of hot cake and hot potato? So my hot cake, and it's something we have been investing in recently, they're China internet stocks. So what we found in China is that the regulatory environment is easing a little on tech and that the PEs are single digit, which gives a great valuation entry point. Um, and that the e-commerce market in general should recover well. So Chinese internet stocks is my hot cake, and my hot potato is a much more broad general one with uncertainty at the levels it's at at the moment. Uh, The short vol trade is not one you want to be in. Thank you very much. That's all we have time for. Thank you to my guests, Gita Bal, Fiona O'Neill, Caroline Shaw, and to Andrew McCaffrey. And thank you to our analysts, Jen Simsek, Rebecca Clements, and Alice Lee. If you'd like to read the analyst survey in full and explore all of the findings, please go to your local Fidelity website or to fidelityinternational.com. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, then please like, share, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The producer today was Holly Eastman with technical support from Callum Blitz. From all of us at Fidelity, goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please see our website.